Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast for early stage web developers and the mentors, teachers, and communities that help them along the way. Hey, hello, and welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast. Hi, Skalk. How are you? I'm good. I'm pretty good, especially for a Monday. <laughs> so, um, Let's just dive right right into it. Um, please tell us more about yourself, uh, your background, how you came to do what you do, uh, what gets you up in the morning, and maybe share a favorite hobby of yours. Yeah. Um, so I'm Elena, Elena Lape. I'm the founder of Holopin, which is a digital badge and gamification platform. Um, mainly aimed at developers, so companies can issue digital badges to developers for various achievements, contributions, etc. And then uh, folks can embed those uh, in their GitHub, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, their own websites. So it's meant to be very cross-platform and uh, it doesn't use the blockchain. Um, my own background uh, is in software engineering uh, and also running developer communities, building developer communities um, in the API space, in the uh, Kubernetes and so the cloud space. Um, I used to also work uh, at GitHub where I ran um, partnerships for one of the biggest students uh, programs in the world. So students could sign up to GitHub get a bunch of free stuff, not just from GitHub, but from other companies. So those were the partnerships that I liaised with. Um, I kind of got into, well, both software engineering and adjacent um, areas. So community building and other tech stuff through partially hackathons. Um, so at university, uh, I went to a lot of developer events um, building stuff over the weekend, uh, as well as being part of other meetups um, and tech communities. As for hobbies, um, I've gotten into drums over the last... Uh, I'm looking at my drum set, literally. <laughs> uh, I've gotten into drums over the last couple of years, um, so that's been fun. Uh, and uh, it's a very good outlet for, uh, you know, if there are stresses in life. Um, and I also wouldn't be a good uh, CrossFitter if I didn't mention the fact that I do CrossFit. I have to, uh, I have to live up to the stereotype. So, yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, um, I used to be in a band back in the day and um, I was the lead guitarist, but every, every chance I got, I would jump on the drums. It's, it's a ton of fun and definitely an outlet if you're like, especially the type of music we were playing, it was like, it was the perfect thing. If you just like, somebody else just take the rhythm and just forget about the lead and I just want to do the drums this time. What <laughs> music like did you Afterwards, play? like, ah, we did death metal. Wow. So hard and fast stuff. Yeah. Um, it was fun. Um, Almost, almost, almost got a record deal. We were just a little too too soon for South Africa, I think. So most of the record studios, when we got there, they were like, they put it on and they, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no, I don't think so. <laughs> They're like, oh come on, you got to try this. 
anyway, yeah. Roadrunner Records coming in the US, like, oh, maybe you should contact them. It was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it, I couldn't make it a career. Alas, I still, one day I'll get some drums um, and start playing again. My daughter is very interested. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely going to probably jump into nice. that at some point. Nice, nice. Um, so, as you, so as you mentioned, um, you have quite a bit of experience with developer communities, open source communities, and developer relations in general. Um, so what makes for an impactful developer community? Yeah, so I'm a big believer that communities that are around similar benefits, or rather communities that benefit its members in some way um, are the most impactful and useful. So not really audiences, not necessarily communities around like a product, um, or it could be around a product, but they should always feel personal and feel um, beneficial to uh, to the, the, the member really. So to give some examples, um, if it's a community where developers can uh, perhaps make a name for themselves um, in the open source so they can, you know, advance their career and have something on their portfolio. That's an example of a nice community. Um, somewhere where they can gain skills um, as well as network and meet people so that they can further find opportunities to build cool stuff and learn even more skills um, and just get inspiration from. Um, those are sort of the the values and the, uh, the the traits of a community that I consider to be a, a good one. Yeah, I agree. Um, somebody, well, uh, Laron, Laron Yanir, I think I got it right. Um, he mentioned about uh, the fact that uh, GetUp is such is actually the most successful social media company <laughs> in a way with GitHub. Um, and the reason he feels that they've been able to do a lot of things correctly or better than you would generally find on social media is exactly because of that fact where there's a, a sense of co-creation and a sense of co-ownership co that doesn't really exist that much on other social media platforms. I always find that interesting um, when you mentioned that. So yeah, I totally agree because, you know, that's what open source really is when it when you boil it down to it, it's a big community um, that just happens to make yeah. software. Yeah. Um, so you also mentioned hackathons, and I know that um, you you call it your gateway drug into programming. Oh, yes. uh, <laughs> what is it about hackathons that you find so engaging? So for some context, I guess, um, a hackathon, the way that um, I understand it and the ones that I've participated in, are either a weekend-long or sometimes week-long events where people get together, uh, either in teams, sometimes solo as well, um, just to build cool stuff. There will normally be some sort of a challenge. It's either organized by one company or a student community or a combination of um, commercial entities and non-commercial entities, sometimes just uh, community-organized. Um, so if there are challenges, then folks, again, in teams uh, work to solve them through software. So I got into hackathons really my first year of university. 
And it was, what was the first hackathon? I think I went to Glasgow. So I studied in Edinburgh. And uh, I was like, okay, what's a hackathon? Well, I don't know. My friends are going, so I guess I'm going to go. And it was 48 hours uh, of 300 people sitting in a room together, just coding and going around and chatting and, you know, names of different frameworks and solutions and whatever being thrown around. Um, And what I really liked about it was how many people I got to meet and how many technologies I got to try out. I mean, later in my life, I understood that, you know, I barely scratched the surface there. But uh, it's really hackathons to me were a place where I could go and I could experiment um, and just build cool stuff. Uh, Competition, I'm a big fan of a little bit of competition at least. Uh, So you could win different prizes um, and uh, as well as travel to different places um that was a big motivator as well in fact yeah as a student especially the fact that I got to visit different countries um I've been to hackathons in the U.S. and Canada uh various ones in Europe and Abu Dhabi so for a student that was uh that was a cool thing as well and I think through there I ended up meeting people with whom I then end up working um which is all the cool one uh, to this day to this day I stay in touch it's just a, a phenomenon which I really remember dearly um and I still look for opportunities to participate when I can either as a mentor or uh come in there and build stuff for the weekend yeah I wonder um so I can see how just that is enough. I mean, there's there's so much to it. Um, it's there's the friendship, there's meeting people, there's networking. I guess in in a sense, depending if that's what you're looking for. Um, there is the opportunity to play with different technologies, like you said, because you know, oftentimes you get people together and it's a diverse group and you're building something that ends up like, oh, I didn't know you knew how to do that. Well, maybe we can use Redis or something, you know? And now somebody does something with Redis and you're like, oh, now you start looking at what they're doing. So you learn a little bit about it. Um, So there's that, uh, the learning, the contributing as part of a group. Um, I wonder if you add to that um, a meaningful cause, like that, would elevate it, I guess, to another level. Um, And I have a sneaky reason why I'm asking that. Um, I have this idea that I've been posing um, to some folks and it sounds like it might actually be something worth trying out at least. And this is kind of the perfect thing for a hackathon, but you're gonna need quite a few people that have different skill sets. Um, The idea is basically like building a web extension, like a browser extension that um, looks at the website that you're on and then like say for example you've done a search because you've heard something about climate change and you're searching for a specific topic and you land on a site then it would have a look at the site's URL and it would grade it as an as a trusted source as like eh, don't just take this as the truth like do some additional research or like you know hit the back button immediately this is probably fake news type thing um, 
And I was thinking of doing a hackathon around that and seeing what one can come up with with a couple of people over the course of the weekend. Um, so that's kind of how I, what, what I mean, like that kind of hackathon, is that something that when you were still doing a lot of these, you would like jumped at the chance? Yeah, I feel like I've even built like uh, a fake news detector at some point. Uh, browser extensions are great projects uh, because it's fairly, let's say compared to, I don't know, building like a self-driving car or something. It's something that you can ship over the weekend, more or less a complete um, product. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are definitely um, hackathons which are, let's say, social impact focused. Um, and uh, it's either just this one challenge. So uh, your idea, for instance, could be something like, Hmm. trying to come up with a good name or a theme there. Uh, the reliability of information being genuine online, fake news uh, detection hackathon, something like that. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, I think you could go to some, you could reach out to some student communities about that or look at DevPost. Um, so DevPost is how lots of hackathons do their um, project submissions because it makes it really um, easy okay. for both organizers and for the participants, uh, well, to assess it and submit it. Um, mm -hmm. But they also have a bunch of public hackathons, so you can see see whether there's one where uh, either your challenge could fit in, or maybe there are some existing ones that. Um, you could join. It's cool. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I'm definitely going to take that up. So there's an interesting thing that I read on your, I, I guess it's on your blog or somewhere in your bio, but you taught HTML and CSS to teenagers while in Panama. So oh, yes. there's quite a lot there. <laughs> um, so I, I just would love to, to, to hear the story. Like, I don't have any specific questions. I would just love to hear how did that come about and why did you you know, learn from that experience. So there's a bit of a background story, which was that I moved to Panama at some point. I thought it was, uh, yeah, I wanted to do the whole nomad thing. Um, and I found myself in a, living in a hacker house uh, in the middle of a jungle overlooking a volcano in Panama. And I was looking for things to do and how I can potentially contribute to the community around me. Um, and I found this charity, I believe, yeah, it was a charity called Raspberry Shake. Um, so they're based in Boquete, Panama, and they, uh, mostly gather, uh, well, teenagers from uh, neighboring villages and from Boquete itself to, uh, teach them about computers and about Raspberry Pis. So they've built their own desktops. They've got these like little cardboards. And I mean, there's also a screen, but uh, completely self-built uh, desktop computers running Raspberry um, Pi uh, as the actual computer. And um, yeah, I bet the founder of that charity, um, Brandon, and uh, we got talking and turns out they've never done anything with web development. And that was something that uh, I was, well, working in and familiar with. 
and uh, ended up doing a course on HTML and CSS for Panamanian teenagers. So they were about 13 to 17 years old, so quite a diverse group. But one thing they all had in common was that they weren't um, really used to computers. Like most of them didn't have computers at home. So there was that sort of added challenge of, uh, you know, all the additional, <laughs> all the additional software things um, that needed to, uh, needed to be shown or taught. Um, and then, then the other, well, the other thing was that um, I did that in Spanish. And it was also interesting having to explain what a div is um, in <laughs> Spanish. But then that brings me to the next challenge, which is even if I did explain it in Spanish, I think that's where I really saw like, like language is a problem, I think, in web development if you want to advance in your career. Um, and it's almost disadvantageous to learn it in your own native language because the second you're going to have to look up an error or if you're going to want to collaborate on certain projects or join a company, which a lot of them now are remote or international, um, you're going to run into issues. So it was very interesting. It's a completely different experience to, let's say, workshops that I've done at like university or meetups or hackathons. Um, but my goal there uh, was essentially give folks exposure to, uh, you know, see, see if I could excite them about web and, you know, writing a bunch of code or something, whether it's divs um, or some CSS, we've done both, uh, and having something pop up on a screen. Um, they were very fascinated by iframes because they could embed YouTube videos in that. Uh, and yeah, that was that was the main project. Build your own kind of personal website or website about um, about anything. Uh, and all that, I will also mention, all that was done on those Raspberry Pi um, computers. So. That's amazing. <laughs> Lots yeah, of fun. It's, it, yeah, no, for sure. It blows my mind sometimes what people will the links people will go to when they're really interested in something or excited about something. I spoke to someone on this uh, podcast from Nigeria and he actually started learning on paper with books. Wow. So he would, he would read the, like the manual, the HTML thing, and then he would write it on paper and pretend that it would, you know, run successfully. Um, and then at some point, a, um, I don't remember, I think it was an uncle of his, um, gave him an old, like, I think it was a BlackBerry Z80 or something like that, and literally started coding on that. And it's not the first time I heard somebody using, like, an old BlackBerry phone or something to actually use some of these sites that you're like, can it even run on that? And, yeah, it's it's it's, it's inspiring when you see that. Um yeah, that must have been a really interesting experience. I spoke to some folks from Women Who Code um, on Friday, and um, Grecia, the one, mentioned the fact that she's trying to expand um, 
the amount of curriculum available in Spanish. Because, you know, for a lot of these folks, having to also learn another language, like a spoken language, on top of learning a programming language, you know, it's just this additional thing. And I totally get that fact where once you start trying to contribute to open source or something, that language thing might be a barrier. And um, when somebody mentions that, it always reminds me, years ago, I was like in the bank when you still did that. And I was like standing in the queue and there was another person that was ahead of me and they were at the counter and they were talking to the person. And um, so in South Africa, we've got like 11 official languages. And um, this person spoke to somebody else and they spoke in their language. And so the guy asked me an interesting question. He says, so when you're counting the money, do you count it in your language or do you count it in English? <laughs> and the guy was like taken aback for a, for a moment. And he was like, I count it in English. Weird. <laughs> so it's so interesting how I think it, it talks a little bit to what, what you've mentioned there, um, where you, you taught it in Spanish, but now they have this potential barrier to entry when you go out in the world and everything is not like the comments, the variable names, everything is in English. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. Um, I remember, so I went to middle school and some of high school in Lithuania. So one of the languages that we were introduced in, um, were Pascal. And I remember it was, it's a strange decision, but like, you know, there's a for loop and a while loop, but then the variable names and a lot of the other computer science things that we were taught were in Lithuanian. But then if you want to look that up or like Google that, like you will not find, well, you will find some information, but it will not be as up to date, let's say, as in English. And then for any new tech that comes out, um, again, languages that aren't English um, kind of struggle to keep up or it sounds unnatural. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, MDN Web Docs has that challenge um, because it's it's whittled down to English and seven other languages. And mm -hmm. one of the main reasons were uh, was that the other languages were just getting so far out of date that it was doing more harm than good to keep it online. Because yeah. and if you looked at the trend of somebody so what would happen is you do a search and then because your language is said to german for example it would direct you to the german version of that page so it'd be slash de slash whatever but then the number of people that would immediately click on the little language selector and switch to english was so high that wow you know you would you would have been doing them a favor to just redirect to english by default and it's literally because they knew that this content wasn't as up to date um, to as the English content, because this is, you know, open web technologies, standards, these things move uh, fast. Yeah. HTML, a um, little more uh, manageable, but like CSS and JavaScript, wow, this stuff evolves so, so quick that it's just, so um, the work that the translation community does on the seven languages that still support it is just phenomenal. Um, the amount of work they do to to keep it up to date. Um, and it's just because they have a pure passion for this. Um, and for some of them, it's literally that. It's like if it wasn't available in, say, Chinese, they would be lost. They wouldn't be able to, like, it'll take them so much longer to learn the, th the stuff because they'll first have to understand just what is this language trying to tell me, just the English. 
over and above like understanding the concepts around JavaScript and CSS and these kinds of things. So that is yeah. for sure, that is a challenge. And um, I think translation tools has helped. I think maybe a lot of people that used to do the quick switch to English from German might be using uh, Google Translate in the browser to do the translation right there. The problem is um, translating to non, so to translating to Asian languages is not good yet. Mm. Um, basically when early on, uh, when we were considering, when the project was considering doing automated translations, uh, we reached out to the community and the Asian community was like, we'd rather start from scratch. Then you give us a auto-translated page and then just try and fix that. It'll be more work than just starting from the English. And so wow. it's like, okay, okay, well, and then, yeah. So that's interesting. And apparently it's improved, but it's it's not there yet. Um, so it's a problem, but it, I think it's solvable with time and technology. Um, but in the meantime, these communities are doing just amazing work, uh, keeping these things up to date. Um, this is taking me down a rabbit hole because now I'm thinking of something else. Um, apparently, one of the reasons that Vue.js was so popular early in the days, in China specifically, is because Evan Yeo, the person who started uh, Vue, is from China. And so for him, it was critical to have the Vue documentation available in Chinese from the beginning. And that's essentially why Vue beat out React in China, is because they, they could access the documentation in their language. So that's Today very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's in that documentary that uh, the Honeypot folks um, made, yeah. uh, the Vue.js documentary. I think it's mentioned in there. I was like, wow, that is powerful knowledge to know that. that it's literally, that's the difference. Um, I have my own reasons why I prefer Vue, but that's, that's different. <laughs> I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole. Um, okay, moving on. So, um, related to teaching, um, there's, I mean, we're, we're technically drowning information on, on the web. Like it doesn't really matter what your interest is. There is a lot of information online. Um, so much so that if, that for a new web developer, it can be like overwhelming. And like, who do I trust? Like who, who are the people that, that, you know, will tell me the right way or the proper way or the best way or the, whatever you want to call it um, to build for the web today. So if you were starting today, what would your approach be to learning as a new web developer? I it's a would broad do, one, but. yeah, <laughs> I would do the exact same thing I think as I did, um, which I will explain what that was. Um, so I, technically I got into web development before the hackathons. Hackathons like really, really got me interested in building stuff. Um, but generally, uh, there are some very popular websites, I'll name three, that have pretty much everything you need to get started. Um, so Codecademy was one of the ones that I think I initially took up. Um, Codecademy, yeah, great tutorials on whatever programming language that you want to take, including the, the web technologies. Free CodeCamp um, has excellent uh, courses. By the way, these are all kind of like structured. Um, well, both of those are very structured courses. So 
it's great if you feel like you need a bit of accountability or like someone to take your hand through all of it. Um, and one other uh, resource that I found particularly useful kind of getting to that next step was YouTube. Um, I remember I was, uh, was I learning, I think, how to build like a full stack application. So with the front end and back end. And I found this tutorial uh, on how to do it with React and Firebase. And I think the tutorial was something like 15 hours long. So I took a whole week, but actually, you know, just followed whatever they were doing. Just literally copied, you know, pause the video, copy the code, paste it. Uh Uh-huh, okay, it doesn't work. Okay, let's see what's up here. Um, And just having that exposure, like, to the code, like, actually seeing it and seeing someone walk through it and explain every bit, um, that helped uh, putting... uh, well, some ideas and concepts in my head, even if I didn't immediately understand them. Um, you don't have to immediately understand everything. I think it just kind of slows you down. Uh, I'm very practical, personally, um, and I think a lot of developers are. But eventually, you will run into issue, which will make you look it up. So uh, it's, it's totally okay to just kind of sometimes a bit blindly follow through it. Um, and then for getting hands, kind of hands-on experience, uh, so one thing that I recommend to new developers is going to maybe your local charities, whether it's like a charity shop or maybe an animal shelter, a coffee shop that you like, uh, that for instance, doesn't have a website and you say, Hey, I can build this for you. Um, initially, you know, either do it for free coffee essentially um it can be tons of fun um and uh, i remember i kind of helped moderate this was years ago uh, a website or uh, even a forum i think uh, for an animal shelter that i used to volunteer which i eventually was i think kicked out of because they found out i was very young but that kind of again helped me gain exposure to what web looks like in the real life and how people use it um and whatever you build um doesn't matter if it's good quality if it's like a small tutorial big tutorial if it's the website that you build for someone really um it's great to put that on your github and make the repo public just make sure that you conceal any sort of private information or passwords or API keys if you're um, if you're at that stage where you're using them, but that serves as a as a good portfolio for what you've built. So then, when you take up paid gigs, um, yeah, you'll be able to showcase something. Yeah, that that's great. I like that. Um, and I think that's pretty much how I I got started as well for the most part. Um, I also threw myself in the deep end over and over again, um, which I still do. Um, and it's totally fine to not to not know everything. Nobody does. Some people pretend to, but they don't. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I especially like, um, so I took the, hmm, I forget the name, but uh, Epic React from Ken C. Dodds. And it's one of the things he says constantly in the thing is like, don't worry if you don't understand all of this right now it'll click eventually. And that's very, very true. Like, don't feel that you need to spin your wheels on this one thing because you don't quite grasp it. 
like continue onwards and like also don't go too far because you might not be able to find where you started again, but don't just spin your wheels on one thing because that gets frustrating and you might lose interest because you're going to, yeah. you're going to start doing the thing that we do as humans, which is you're going to point the finger at you and you're going to say, I'm too stupid. I, this is not meant for me. Da, da, da. And don't just don't just keep going. You'll figure it out. It's fine. Um, find read this brings me to another topic like i spoke to somebody um on discord during the week during last week and they were talking about the fact that um they're not sure if they still want to write technical blog posts because of chat gpt and i was like oh boy okay i understand where you're coming from i understand what you're saying but let's let's look at it from a different perspective and uh, every blog post that's written, if you truly write it yourself, it's fine if you use some of these tools to assist you and maybe getting started or something. But at the end of the day, it's something that you wrote, either f because you experienced some challenge and you fixed and you got over it and you fixed it and it's working and you're excited and you write about that, or it's just some knowledge you've gained you want to share. The thing is, if you truly write it yourself, each post by each different person as as unique as they as their personality and the cool thing about that is instead of having a generic answer that something like a chatbot will give you you could read four different blog posts and at the fourth one you just click suddenly because the way that person thinks and therefore the way they explain it is matches you and how you think and how you understand things so you know, that's something that I think is important that people realize that these tools are powerful and useful, sure. But I think the human thing and the way that you would explain it is still very, very um, valuable. 100%. And also just doing the uncomfortable is what makes you get better at something. Like, whether it's writing or it's web development or really probably any skill in life um like when you look back at your life and moments where you learned the most and when you advanced the most like those are the ones that felt really uncomfortable and really sometimes mm. even desperate in time um it's just gonna feel great at the end like you're gonna get yeah. better you can be really good at guitar or you can be really good at wonderwall if you constantly keep just playing wonderful. Um, yeah. But in order to advance, you need to, uh, you need to go through the uncomfortable, but that's, that's yeah. the hard bit. Um, yeah, no, for yeah. sure. Yeah. All of, all of, um, all of our history, um, locked up in our brainstem is pushing against that. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't, don't go to the uncomfortable thing, do the comfortable thing that's familiar. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. You grow when you put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. I mean, for me, for example, um, holy cow, I don't even know how long ago, maybe it's even 10 years ago. No, it can't be that long. Maybe it is. Um, I went to Venezuela and spoke at a Ruby conference about Firefox OS. And I did a couple of things in that, that was like, you know, I did a live coding, which is already scary <laughs> in talk because, you know, you never know. <laughs> And then I added on top of that, like pushing to a GitHub repo, deploying it, taking a photo of the audience and tweeting it from the phone. Nice. Um, and so 
all of that was really, really uncomfortable. When I went on stage, I was like, there's so many things that can go wrong here. But now it's one of my fondest memories ever of any talk I've ever done. Um, yeah. So it shows you, like I put myself in a really uncomfortable situation, like a foreign country, everything was weird. And I put myself way in the deep end. And yet that's the one I remember more than anything else. So yeah, I think that I 100% agree, like put yourself in uncomfortable situations. You'll learn from them and you'll grow because of it. Yeah. Not sure how, how, how we got here, but I mean, I completely agree. Oh, well, the technical, <laughs> technical uh, writing or coding or competing with yeah. AI or just leveraging it, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. doing something new or different is uh, hard. Yeah, for sure. And something else that's hard for a lot of people is contributing to open source. So while I believe that open source has a role to play an important role to play as part of your learning your learning path like any time but especially like when you're new it can be play a pivotal role um i think a lot of it shares a lot of the similarities that you've raised around hackathons um but it can like an hackathon be daunting and a little scary um any advice for those thinking of contributing to open source, but they're like, hmm, not sure. A little scared. So I'm going to go back to everything. Well, ignore everything that I've just said. Um, you know, you, you don't, it doesn't have to be difficult <laughs> or, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be hard. Um, no, but really when people, I think, think about open source, they immediately, well, contributing to open source. They think about contributing to Node.js or contributing to JavaScript, kind of these like, you know, all the big open source names that we know. Um, the reality is that there are tons of open source projects and not even code that you can contribute to, whether it's for your portfolio or you want to get better at something um, or just want to learn about open source. So um first place to look at and something that um i really like to do honestly when uh i discover uh documentation that for instance doesn't quite make sense um or something is not documented uh and then you have to find answers in like stack overflow um this concerns like framework documentation um, programming language documentation, maybe it's a small library for something. Um, you can always, if it's open source, uh, they will usually also have the documentation open source. So you can either um, create an issue on GitHub uh, referencing those lines um, with a suggestion of what it could be improved um, to, uh, as well as why it should be done. Um, that's super helpful for maintainers um, and having been in the open source for a while um, folks who are leading projects often don't need code contributions per se like they welcome them but also for libraries uh, that are really really large they have teams and they have engineering managers and they have uh, folks who assess the priorities based on 2000 issues that are already open but those small improvements um, really, really make a difference. And it's fine because you're still contributing to, to a project. 
looking specifically um, at GitHub, if you're looking for ways to contribute, um, there is a good first issue tag. Um, so if you just search for it um, on GitHub, you will find uh, issues and pull requests that are flagged by maintainers as something that should be quite beginner friendly. And those are a combination of, um, again, code contributions and non-code contributions. I think it's a really good time for that and generally for getting into open source. Uh, we're seeing a lot of commercial products um, open sourcing parts of their code. Uh, Twitter just uh, open sourced the algorithm. I was going to mention that um, when you said that GitHub is a social network. I don't know. Have you seen the issues? Have you seen the issues and the pull requests? I have not. No, I haven't. Oh looked at my it God. At okay, all. you're missing out. You are okay. missing out. Okay, I'll it go is, check it uh, out. Okay, I mean, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely mm -hmm. not like traditional GitHub issues. Um, it's just people posting pictures of their cats. Um, oh <laughs> people asking to replace mentions of Elon with uh, mentions of Zuckerberg. Um, or was it Zagberg? Um, oh, it's, uh, oh, I mean, okay seems like an April Fool's joke, but it isn't. Um, why Why was I saying this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, commercial open source. Yeah. So uh, especially startups also that are venturing out into the open source world. Um, search for it on Twitter. Not Twitter algorithm, but on Twitter, the social media. Looking for contributors, um, etc. And they're usually quite welcoming uh, in their communities and their discord. And um, if you're looking for a particular event where you feel like you could get, uh, if you would benefit from additional support or that sort of community vibe and accountability, every year mm. uh, in October, uh, DigitalOcean organizes an event for 150,000 people um, called Hacktoberfest. And so then during that month, um, you can uh, basically on GitHub search for uh, repositories, so projects that are tagged with Oktoberfest, uh, as well as different issues, so folks that uh, issues that need help, uh, and take up some of those challenges. They can be quite beginner friendly, and if you do well, um, you might even get a, or if you if you do anything, might even get a hall open badge. So uh, that you can then showcase to everybody. Yeah, that's how I learned about Holopin. Um, and so, <laughs> I'm. So, uh, Hacktoberfest went through a bit of a rough time during 2020-2021, I think. Um, and and I understand why that happened. Um, uh, you know, people were abusing it for their own to get T-shirts, essentially. They weren't really interested in in the code, in the in the community, or anything like that. They were just like, ah, I want a T-shirt. And so people did all kinds of silly things, um, adding their their name to a list, all that kind of stuff. But I but last year I was very impressed with how they've turned this around. Um, I, I believe they've listened to what the community and especially maintainers um, the complaints they had about this, because um, that was the other thing. Like a lot of 
uh, maintainers was just drowned in senseless pull requests that they then had to like filter through and try and figure out what is something I need to actually pay attention to and what is just somebody trying to get a pull request opened because you don't even have to have it merged to to count. So um, they have done a really good job last year. So um, I'm happy to endorse it um, as, as, as a great way to get into open source, especially now. I think it's wonderful. And um, with Holopen added to the mix, it's even more fun. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I second that. Um, so we've touched on this briefly, and I don't want to dig into it too deep because I think people are kind of sick to hear about chatbots and AI. <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's here. It's been talked about everywhere, and um, you know, I I just like to to hear your thinking about one specific topic, and that is the sense that especially the jobs of junior developers are going to go away, and as a result of this, um, I don't quite agree. The more I the more I play with these tools, and the more I learn about them the less confident I am that this is the case. But, you know, depending on where, which bubble you're in on social media, you're going to either be scared or you're going to start feeling the way I do. Um, so just in general, like, what do you think about it just broadly? And then, you know, what advice do you have for folks to stay motivated, not lose hope? AI makes you, and maybe you feel the same way, a lot faster at writing code especially if you kind of know what you're doing. I mean, that's, that's an important part. Um, but it doesn't, it's in isolation, it does not get you that far. If you're writing something novel, um, if you're very rarely code, um, unless you are a level CIO, uh, I forgot his real name, very rarely is code just like a single file uh, of stuff. Um, a lot of the time it's infrastructure that touches different parts um, of the application. There's backend, there's frontend, there's databases. If you're working at a bigger company, then you've also have to worry about integrating with these legacy um, systems, which is honestly a, all of the big tech companies. Um, let alone that it's probably going to be a while before those big companies can really even use things like um, GitHub Copilot due to the data being sent um, outside and fed right back into the algorithm. So, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel the same way like, as you do. Um, it will eliminate a lot of boring work that folks don't necessarily like to work on. I mean, there are people who are very passionate about tests, but uh, personally, maybe not a huge fan. I think junior developers especially are not necessarily fond of those. They want to just build stuff. Um, I know I want to build stuff. So for things like that, that kind of like tedious, um, they, uh, they bring in tons of value. So I think what that means is ultimately you're just going to be writing stuff that matters and that um, is important. Well, everything's important to our application. But that uh, are sort of those co core features um, or core connectors. Um, when we think about calculators, right, like all of a sudden 
everyone didn't just become a mathematician. Um, you still need to understand the maths, even know what to input into a calculator. And then ultimately, even though we all have Excel and we all have calculators, companies still hire data scientists. So kind of the same, same logic there. Um, and just to, to add to that, coding, yes, I think it's absolutely still worth learning. <laughs> um, but what we're going to see is we're going to see perhaps a little bit of a shortage of those universal um, skills that will always really be valued and forever. So passion and wanting to build things, um, ability to like see systems from a high level perspective. So literally software engineering um, or web engineering, um, communication. So the way that you speak to your colleagues, the way that you can, you know, can you actually explain what's happening um, in your code? Or can you actually explain what you need to be built, whether you feed, feed that into chatbots or whether you that tell that to your colleagues, it probably still helps if you're able to do that. And for that, you do need a lot of that knowledge and go through all the, the, the hard work of, of learning um, how to code. Um, and written communication, again, not just because we're in a remote culture, but because of all these tools coming up um, is... Uh, is uh, important. So I would say, yeah, it's just, it's it's a great tool that you will be able to leverage or you are already leveraging. Um, but the more you progress and you will notice yourself progressing, um, the more you will realize that uh, it's not something that you can trust blindly. Um, and so you yeah. still kind of need a bit of that background knowledge. Yeah, for sure. Sure, and I do. Um, <laughs> I do see a lot of people saying like, "Oh, finally, something can write my test for me." Um, that's also like this nuanced thing because I listened to somebody the other day talk about specifically tests, and they were like, um, "People shouldn't just now do the, use this as a way to get a hundred percent test coverage because that's like one of those things that a lot of people talk about. Like, you should go for hundred percent test coverage, and it's like you should go for a hundred percent." of tests that are meaningful to the code base. Um, mm -hmm. Like you can write a test for every little thing, but you're probably doing a lot of busy work, which means you're doing stuff that keeps you busy, but it's not really adding any value. Um, yeah. So, it, it, and again, here the human thing comes in. You can tell a chatbot, like write a bunch of tests, but you still have to evaluate which of those are really valuable and meaningful to add to the project. And it's going to be, the proper guardrails you need in place so that you can more freely make changes and add new features without having to worry too much about regressions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, I think uh, I haven't listened to the episode yet, but um, oh man, now his name's going to escape me. Uh, come on, <laughs> AI, help me. Um, <laughs> let me see. Sorry, I'm a large Safe language coded. model with the data up to 2021. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Seth Godin, he has, a, he has an episode on his podcast that says um, how to dance with AI. And he's used that metaphor quite a lot. Um, he's used it in the past, uh, dancing with resistance, as a thing that we touched on earlier in the, in the podcast, like how you work with being uncomfortable, how you work with being afraid 
and that kind of thing. And so he's he's taking that narrative and applying it to AI. So I'm really curious about listening to that, but I'm pretty sure it's gonna it's gonna have the same kind of message that you just you just gave here. So yeah, um, I'll link it up in in the in the show notes if anybody else wants to listen to it. Um, so we're getting close to the end, maybe. I don't know. It feels like we can still go for quite some time. But um, you mentioned right at the beginning that you are the founder of Holopen. So I've spoken to quite a few folks uh, on the podcast, but also just in the community. Um, they are quite keen actually to start their own thing as opposed to necessarily just finding a job at an existing company. So, and as you mentioned, you didn't start with Holopen. You did some other things before that. Why made you decide to, you know, branch out and start your own company? Um, yeah, just in general, like, did you have like a well thought through plan or did you just like dive in? Um, any advice for potential new business company owners, founders? Whatever, whatever advice I would give, that would all be uh, confirmation bias. I'd have to dive into that. Um, with Holopin, so I think more more broadly, um, so before Holopin, I did consulting, um, and before I, that and during that, I've always kind of dabbled into building ideas and testing ideas. Um, some of them, I mean, most of them, uh, never really launched. Um, I always wanted that, and I think for forever will um, will want. Um, build companies really. Um, I am very impact driven, I think. Um, no, I think I know. And I felt that for me, the right medium to do that is through doing things that haven't been done before. Um, we talked about being uncomfortable. Um, again, while you're kind of going through that, as a founder, if you're if you're listening to this and if you're uh, going to do it, it's going to be uncomfortable. There are lots of things that you won't know in advance. Um, but just seeing the people around me um, and having my own experience through just learning a lot um, through those hard moments and putting yourself in situations that don't feel familiar, um, like it feels really good at the end. Uh, when you're finally able to overcome it and you're able to see uh, people happily using your product. Uh, that brings me so much joy. I really like being almost like incognito. Like people don't, like it doesn't matter that whatever my role is, like, you know, somewhere deep down inside, you know that you kind of, you, you, you contributed to this thing. So it really feels like you're um, serving the community, um, but it's very rewarding. And so I felt that, yeah, for me, building things and uh, having an impact in that way, um, having a company is, uh, yeah, it, it's, I think it's a question where my kind of answer changes every day. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, just, I just have this thing. Um, and so... I mentioned that I've, I've done some other other things before. So just um, as far as advice goes, I can, again, confirmation bias. Um, 
but some mistakes I've made in the past are just coding up the whole product um, before you even have a validated idea. Um, I had built a two-sided marketplace for like beauty services. Um, it was an idea that I had for like probably three years um, and then uh, built it over a couple of months and you know it turned out that nobody actually wanted it. Um, despite having spoken to lots of different people and people in beauty services, it uh, turns out that there's not enough money in the idea because, well, I mean, ultimately you need to think about that. How else are you going to make the company profitable and pay your employees and survive? Um, I also had like a dating app. Uh, oh my God, quarantine dating. I uh, probably don't have the domain anymore, but it was, uh, it was an interesting test as well. Um, so that would be that would be kind of contrast to what um, after having those experiences I did with Holopin. So Holopin MVP was mocked up with Canva, uh, just a bunch of stickers um, on a little rectangle, and that embedded into a GitHub profile. Um, and then I've shown it to some people and just basically listened. Um, didn't say what it is, just listened what they thought or had to say. And then once, you know, once you start getting, you maybe tweak things, but then once you start getting a few hits, or like, oh yeah, that's cool, like tell me more. Um, not from your friends, that's another important thing, not from your friends. Your friends are always going to say that it's a great idea, we support you so much. Your friends, if they're not your target market, they are not going to be ones that will, you know, make your business your business. You need to go to people that you don't know um, or people who really are your target market to understand whether like how viable it actually is. Um, that was definitely my mistake, I think, with the, the beauty services. Um, like what I should have done is, you know, show them the idea or, or gave them the app and then um, send them a payment link, like basically. <laughs> That's how you validate, um, but I didn't do that. Um, and uh, with Holopin, I mean, we were in we were in stealth uh, for the first six months or so, um, and that was precisely to do all the like validation that there is a business in this. Um, I started with the idea of stickers, um, and then that kind of evolved through like listening to other devrels and uh, customers, but stayed in stealth like from my friends. Um, because there's always the risk of like, you know, when you tell people that, oh, I started going to the gym, for instance, or like, oh, I picked up this new hobby, then they say, oh, that's great. And then you kind of get the like instant gratification, like immediate validation. And then because the dopamine has already hit your brain, you're less kind of motivated to persevere. Um, and also like those are not the right things that you should be hearing. I think you should be hearing like lots of criticism. Um, yeah, but then we launched and it turned out well. So, um, yeah, uh, competition, that's also important. Competition is good. If there's no competition, I mean, there's a reason why there's no quarantine dating. Um, or was it Corona Singles? Oh, God, I don't remember the, the actual domain name. But uh, if there's no competition, it's probably because someone already tried it um, and there wasn't a business in it. I mm, good point. So 
Well, I would say if you still own a do the domain Corona Singles, like hang on to it. I think it's going to become valuable. <laughs> you might have to, you might be able to flip it for a couple of thousand dollars soon. Um, Maybe. You never know when Corona brings out something called Corona Singles. They might just be knocking on your door. <laughs> I think it's one of the diseases that, um, web developers, maybe developers in general have is just buying domains because you're going to build a thing and then you just end up with a lot of domains. Yep. Um, there's actually a browser extension that a previous guest built that is supposed to, whenever you land on one of these domain registration sites, it pops up a little thing that tells you like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> do you really need another domain? I think it's called oh, Domain Goalie. Yeah, I think it's nice. called Domain Goalie. Um, so <laughs> the fact that that exists means that we have a problem and we should maybe stop <laughs> registering domains. Yeah. Um, Elena, this was a great conversation. Um, in closing, what are your hopes for the future, both personally and professionally? My hopes for the future? Um, I have a very bright outlook on the future. Um, I am excited, uh, well, professionally about the future and current existence and growth of Holopin. Um, we're launching a couple of additional products soon, so I'm very excited about those. I'm going to go work on the newsletter after this. Um, personally, I, I'm, yeah, so I, I probably don't think like long, long term personally, but I'm going to um, KubeCon in a couple of weeks. Very excited about that. Um, and just, uh, summer is great it's coming it's almost it's almost here um but staying you know focused enjoying the the process of working and um getting into those uncomfortable situations um and uh yeah and probably getting my cat out of the way <laughs> well that was great. Um, I wish you all, all the success with Olipin. I'm looking forward to uh, reading the newsletter. Um, and yeah, thanks for being an awesome guest. It was lovely speaking to you. Lovely speaking to you as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mycelium Network podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep making the web awesome.